Imagine a snow-capped mountain vista, stretching as far as the eye can see. The fragrant scent of pine trees all around you, cool air filling your lungs. And as you raise your binoculars, the velvety antlers of a herd of caribou come into focus, seeming almost close enough to touch. Today, we're heading to the wild and wonderful state of Alaska. So grab a warm beanie, cause you never know in Alaska, and get ready to explore this spectacular, untamed land like you've never seen it before. Today's guest is Valerie Stimmick, an award-winning travel writer, author of Dark Skies, A Practical Guide to Astrotourism, a Harry Potter aficionado, which obviously I love, and for the purposes of today's show, a homegrown Alaskan. Thank you so much for being with us today, Valerie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have so many questions about what it was like to grow up in the last frontier and the 49th state, but it's one of the states that I think is on everybody's bucket list because it's just so cool, so different. It's not attached to the rest of them. So what was it like growing up there and how did it shape you being a kid in such an amazing state? That's a great question. And the funny thing is that I don't know that it particularly shaped me in any unique ways. The thing about being a kid is that you don't really have anything to compare it to. So when I grew up in Alaska, I lived there from when I was five until I was in college. I didn't realize how different and unique Alaska was and how many people wanted to visit until I went to college and people would say, oh, I want to go to Alaska someday or wow, you've seen the Northern Lights. Because when you're a kid in Alaska, that's the experience every child's having. You don't realize how cool your state is or even just your hometown until you go away and come back. I had the same experience and people often ask me, being a Floridian, do you see alligators all the time and isn't that scary? I'm like, no, it's, I mean, they're everywhere, but so we don't think about it. So it's probably the same for you with moose and the Northern Lights and bears. Like that's all so exciting to me, but another day in the life for a kid in Alaska, right? Pretty much. <laughs> When you go back, what are your sort of top must-see destinations throughout the state? And obviously, it's the biggest state, so there must be so many. Alaska is massive, as you said, but most of it is not accessible on the road system. So there is a sort of tourist track that everyone follows in a different order, visits different parts of. And just to give a little bit of geography, there's the South Central region, which is where Anchorage is. That's the biggest city. There's also communities like Seward and Homer, Whittier, Girdwood, the town where I grew up, which is just outside Anchorage. Then there's interior Alaska, which is where Denali National Park is. That's where Fairbanks is. Fairbanks is sort of like an unofficial capital of that part of the state. And then there's Southeast Alaska, which is where most of the cruise ships go. So that's where the actual capital of Juneau is located, as well as other small, basically coastal communities that are not connected by road. They're only connected by water, like Sitka, Skagway, Haines, Ketchikan. So those are the three big regions that most people visit. Most people never go to the Arctic. They never go to Western Alaska. They never go to the Aleutians, which are sort of the other three of the six regions. And so like most people, my favorite places are in those more easy to reach, more popular place. So for me, there's no trip to Alaska. It never feels complete if I don't go to Denali National Park. Can you give us a rundown of the eight national parks in Alaska? So there's Glacier Bay, there's Denali and Kenai Fjords. Those are the big three that people typically visit. Some might make it to Wrangell St. Elias. If you want to visit Katmai or Lake Clark, you have to fly to both of those. That's where the bears are. So that's where people love to go see bears you know, eating right from the river when the salmon are running. And then the other two parks are... Kobuk Valley and Gates of the Arctic, which are both far north and are pretty much accessible only by plane. 
but it's playing from the fir- from like Fairbanks. So you fly to Fairbanks and then you might fly to like Kotzebue or somewhere else further north and then you get transported in. So it's a very big journey to get to some of those parks, which is why I believe Gates of the Arctic gets fewer than 10,000 visitors a year. And it's the hardy bucket list national park travelers who want to visit them all. Those are the people. They're not necessarily Alaska people. They're the people who are like, I got to see all the national parks. And they make that journey because it really is a trek to get up there. And you're going to be in the backcountry with no support. The ranger station 600 miles away. You literally are on your own. <laughs> That's it. You're on your own out there. <laughs> you can forget about getting snacks at the ranger station, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And <laughs> what snacks you bring better come in a bear container because you're going to be out there with all of the wildlife by yourself. <laughs> Is there one park that's better than another for seeing wildlife or do they all kind of have their own specific animals that they're famous for? So Denali National Park is known for the big five, Alaska's big five, which is moose, grizzly bears, doll sheep, which is the species of sheep that the park was created to protect, caribou and wolves. So that's the big five. But there are tons of other animals in Denali. So lots of times people see porcupines. If you're really lucky, you'll see a wolverine. If you want sea life, that's Kenai Fjord. So that's where you can see orcas, humpback whales, sometimes other whale species, lots of seals, sea lions, sea otters, which are beloved by everyone, puffins, all kinds of seabirds. So it's like, if you want land, you go to Denali. If you want sea, you go to Kenai Fjords. And then if you want bears eating salmon from a river, you go to usually Katmai, but Lake Clark is a good backup. Is there a park that's better for kids? I'm guessing the ones that are easier to get to are probably better, just depending on what kind of travel your kid is. Alaska is kid-friendly, but it really tends toward kids and parents that are really willing to engage with it and look at it and enjoy and try and see what's there for them. There's the Junior Ranger Program. And then the boat concessioners who run the boats in Kenai Fjords, they often have children's programming as well. So they do try and get kids engaged who are on the boat because they know that it's important to keep them interested and make them want to come back and visit again and have a good time. So when people are visiting the national parks, are there any accommodations that are maybe not the typical hotel? Is there anything that people can do that's just so typically Alaska or so different? The accommodations you encounter when you're visiting one of the national parks is going to be pretty standard, pretty much what you expect. Though I will say your budget is going to need to be higher for the class of accommodation you're going to receive. So there's a number of properties deep in the backcountry of Denali National Park that you actually currently have to fly to reach. They are cabins, lodges, things like that. There is an incredible property that's actually on the slopes of Denali in the Alaska Range, but that is a very high bucket list price tag. I think the last time I checked, it was something like $3,500 per person per night, minimum of three nights. So definitely something you're going to be saving up for for a while. Other than that, near the parks, you're looking at pretty much standard like hotels and campgrounds. You mentioned that most people are on sort of the tourist trail because there aren't roads that go throughout Alaska. So for people who love a good road trip, what are some of the best routes and itineraries? Where do you send people when they want to know where to drive around in Alaska? We don't have any interstates, as you would expect from the fact that we don't connect to any other states. And pretty much what that means is that you're going to be either doing a loop or doing out and backs along the available highways. So in general, I advise people to start in Anchorage. And so it's a good place to fly into, typically the cheapest place to fly into. 
start yourself there and then strike out. And the two ways that I would go from Anchorage, depending on how much time you have, if you're a little bit short on time, you could just do what's called the Kenai Peninsula. So you'd head south from Anchorage and hit up Seward and Homer. And then there are a number of other communities. That's sort of an out and back road trip. It's a beautiful drive. When I was road tripping in Alaska, I noticed that there were camper vans and RVs everywhere. People took it to a whole new level. Does it make sense to drive there from the lower 48 through Canada, or is it possible to rent an RV once you get there? It's absolutely possible to rent an RV or a camper. There's pretty much any variety of combination you might want. The deciding factor, I would say, other than if you have a vehicle like an RV that you already own and you want it, you're trying to decide whether or not to drive or fly up and rent one, would be how much time you have. Because driving the Alaska Canadian Highway or one of the other routes up through Canada to Alaska is time consuming. Not only do you need the time to travel to and from, but how much time do you want to spend in Alaska? If you have a month or longer, bringing your own vehicle is a great option because accommodation, even when you rent an RV, is going to add up quickly. But if you're looking at one or two weeks, that's a great time to just fly up and rent because that's going to make the most sense. It's going to be the most cost-effective option. And please don't forget that everything is more expensive in Alaska, including gas. So your RV, which gets, I don't know, six to 10 miles per gallon, is going to add up Either way, whether you're renting or driving your own, but if you drive, it's a lot further. So just, I would say, you know, make the decision based on how much time you have and how much time you want to spend in Alaska. That's probably the best way to decide. Let's talk about Alaska in the winter. Now, I have no idea how to drive in ice or snow or mountains. What do we need to know about visiting in the winter and possibly dealing with driving in adverse conditions? Or should we just not visit in the winter at all? Is there someone that can drive me around? Roughly 90% of people visit Alaska in the summer, which falls between more or less Memorial Day and Labor Day. Most of the tourism infrastructure is seasonal and aimed at summer activities. Winter visitors are coming for the Northern Lights, maybe some dog sledding, ice fishing, things like that. If you want to visit in the winter, a lot of the car companies will provide you a vehicle that has either studs or four-wheel drive or both. So it is a vehicle that is meant to handle snow and ice, and you'll accommodate that different condition pretty quickly. If you are visiting Alaska and you don't feel comfortable driving, there are ways to still do a lot of the activities. And it's going to rely on shuttles or taxis, things that are going to end up costing more and be a little bit less flexible on the schedule. But it is entirely possible to still like fly into Fairbanks and take the shuttle out to China Hot Springs Resort, spend a day or two there, see the Northern Lights, go in the hot springs, shuttle back and then taxi around town for all your other activities. Totally possible. If you can dream the perfect vacation, you can create it with Trip Canvas from AAA Travel, the all-in-one platform that lets you research, plan, and book the ultimate getaway. Trip Canvas, let's go somewhere. Let's talk about the quintessential Alaskan cruise. If you want to access Glacier Bay, you have to be on a boat, right? Correct. Yeah, you have to be on a boat. You could visit Glacier Bay by flying to the town of Gustavus and then getting on a National Park Service boat and going into the park that way, but it's only boat accessible. So one way or another, you're going to be on a boat. And a lot of the big cruise companies do have Glacier Bay on their itineraries because it is a park you can't get to any other way. Overall, do you think cruising is the best way to see the sights? I've been primarily on the smaller ships. I did do what's called a mid-sized ship. It was about 250 passengers. So you can imagine when I say small ships, I mean small, like small. less That's than 100 real, guests. Yeah. <laughs> but the mid-sized ship, we set out from Vancouver and we came up the inside passage and then we visited communities like Ketchikan and Juneau and Sitka. So basically what you're doing is it's either going to be a day kind of 
cruising at sea. It's not really a day at sea because you're inside the inside passage. So you've got land on either side of you. And each port's going to be very different where you just pull in and you have access to all of the excursions and just walking around. If you don't want to pay for excursions, you like to do your own thing. All of the Alaskan ports are really easy to just get off your boat and walk and do things on your own, which is nice, especially if you are lured in by the largest cruise ships typically have really good deals. But if you're like, I'm doing this on a budget, you can do budgeting, like a budget Alaska cruise by getting a really good deal on your cabin and then just walking around in port and you'll still see plenty of things. You might not see the main sites that everyone else is going to see, but you can still get a really good sense of each community when you do it that way. That's a great budgeting tip. I assume that the bigger ships also come with more people too. So I've never been on one of the big ships in Alaska. I've done some of the smaller companies. I love the small ship cruising. It's, it's a great option if you want to get away. That's a way to escape crowds in Alaska is to do a small ship cruise. So we talked about budget and Alaska being an expensive destination for a lot of reasons. Can you come to Alaska as a budget traveler or are there things that are just so worth splashing out on that maybe you can find other things that you can do on the cheap? I always love seeing budget questions, but it is a very hard one to answer because it requires you to compromise. And I think budget travelers generally realize that, but then they get to Alaska and they're like, mm, I want to do all these things. So you might not be able to do the tours, but you could, for example, instead of going out on a boat tour of Kenai Fjords National Park, you could just go drive a vehicle up to Exit Glacier and hike up to the ice field. Very different experiences, but you have technically visited Kenai Fjords National Park by doing both. So if all you want to do is visit that national park, there's a way to do it for really cheap. In fact, you don't even need a car. There's a $10 shuttle. So you don't have to rent a car. You can cut that price. Accommodation is definitely going to be the biggest part of your budget. Transport will be the next biggest. So it's always worth considering. And as I said earlier, there are lots of rustic accommodations at not rustic prices. So you can imagine when you start cutting toward rustic pricing, how much more rustic the accommodation will be. Yeah, then transportation, though we do have bus lines, so you don't have to rent a vehicle. You can take up, there are buses that transport between typically the major communities. So Denali, Fairbanks, Anchorage and Seward are all connected by bus. It can be done. It's just going to require you to be aware in advance of the compromises you will be making and be okay with that. What are the lesser known experiences for like the more adventurous person? Like you said, the thousand dollar flight seeing or what are those things that people need to say, I'm saving for this because it's worth it? I would plan for three flight seeing trips. I would plan for flight seeing trip in, in Denali National Park that lands on a glacier. That's going to be $600, $700 a person. I would plan for a flight seeing trip to go land on another glacier. Typically, either it's going to be like Knick Glacier or Matanuska Glacier. That'll be from Anchorage. That one, I think, is typically in the four to $500 per person range. And then I would plan that flight seeing to go see the bears over in Lake Clark or Katmai. Let's talk about the history of Alaska, because the influence of Alaska's indigenous culture and people, there's 10,000 years of history before the U.S. ever showed up on the scene. So there's so much more to Alaska than what meets the eye. What's the best way, do you think, for visitors to honor that? I'm glad you asked about this because, first of all, I want to identify that I am not of Native Alaskan descent. I'm not of a, an Indigenous American or First Nations descent, but it is something which I am incredibly passionate about. And I think that's actually probably the thing that most came to me from growing up in Alaska, is this realization that the land that you travel on in the entire United States, but in Alaska also, 
it was stewarded by Native peoples who understood how to manage it so that it is here for us today. So the very first thing is you're planning your Alaska trip. Remember, you are on land that was kept not for you, but kept so that you could visit and have it be this incredible experience that it is today. This is very important to keep in mind. So thank you for bringing that up. What are some specific types of cultural activities that visitors can seek out? In Anchorage, there's an incredible museum called the Alaska Native Heritage Center. So it's meant to kind of be this one central area where you can kind of get a sense for the major Native groups around the the state. They also have this beautiful short walking path, flat, super accessible, that has different examples of Native structures and teaches you about how, you know, when you live in the Arctic, your housing is and your, your, your general lifestyle is going to be very different than when you live in South Central, than when you live on the coast and you're relying on fishing and boating. And so it does a really nice job of doing introductions. Pretty much all of Southeast Alaska is the land that was once the traditional area of the Clinket people. And I apologize for my mispronunciation. I am not great with the sounds that their language uses. They were one of the largest indigenous groups in the, the New World, in North America, South America. I mean, rivaling the Inca and the Maya. There's not a lot left of what they built, but this tradition of carving totem poles is still alive. So actually really interesting, totem poles were typically not preserved. Like when European descended people arrived in Alaska, they, they wanted to preserve these totem poles and they were like, we don't preserve totem poles. That's part of the cycle is that these cedar trees, which we have felled and we have carved to tell our stories, when they fall again, they become part of the earth. And so the idea of preserving totem poles was a totally novel thing that has been accommodated. And they just recently started the first phase of a huge totem pole project in Juneau, where when you arrive now, even by cruise ship, there are these totem poles lining the waterfront, which sort of evokes the way it would have been if you had arrived in the native community historically, where totem poles would have told you who you were arriving to and told you the story of the people that were there. I love that. It's important to connect with the culture of where you are and not just take a tour of the animals. The people matter too. And I'm glad that states like Alaska and Hawaii have found really good ways of focusing on that and honoring the past. Are there any culinary traditions that are important to Alaskans? I think everybody thinks about salmon because, you know, you get there and you very quickly find out there's five kinds of salmon and you can try it all. And yes, we know all about the salmon. So what do you have to eat when you're there? Salmon and then what? Seafood in general. You can get incredible salmon, of course, fresh salmon, five different varieties of Pacific salmon, lots of great shellfish. We have Increasingly, actually, some really interesting, I believe they call it mariculture. So oyster farming is actually coming up. Some communities in Southeast as well as Homer are looking at actually creating oyster farms, which is neat because it's totally different water and water has such an impact on the way oysters are produced. We're starting to see a resurgence in the use of indigenous plants in food. So you'll start to see a lot more berries, fireweed, which is a beautiful pink flower that blooms throughout the summer. They're using that in things like ice cream pastries. It's a nice like floral flavor. And then um, there's birch farming. So much like maple syrup, there's birch syrup, there's birch water. Some people are curious about wild game. So moose, bear, etc. caribou, that is not allowed to be sold commercially. So typically you will find restaurants that may have some, like I had a moose steak <laughs> once. It's not common. And I don't think that they're particularly popular. 
most Alaskans who eat wild game, they're finding it from their friends or they're going out and hunting it themselves. So make friends with some Alaskans. Maybe they'll invite you over. Like, for example, on my Facebook, just had a former boyfriend from high school who's getting married and he was seeing if anyone had any extra ground moose for a taco bar. And my husband was like, I don't know about a moose taco bar. And I was like, that sounds great. Let's go. <laughs> We're not invited. but <laughs> <laughs> That's really different, though. You could only do that in Alaska. That's a very Alaskan thing. The Department of Fish and Wildlife works to take animals that have been killed on the road and actually distributes them in a lottery system. So people will get a moose kill. They don't have to go out into the wild to go hunt it. And then they'll split it with their friends because moose are huge. So you will find that occasionally, but that's not going to be on most menus. You're more likely to just find either American classics, some incredible craft beer, great craft beer up there. There is a gorgeous section in your Dark Skies book on the Aurora Borealis. So for those who haven't read it just yet, can you give us some tips for seeing the Northern Lights in Alaska? The best time of year to see it is typically between, I'd say the beginning of November and the middle of March. But the best chance is to go in the heart of winter, bundle up and just endure <laughs> and, and then let the awe of the night sky distract you from your freezing toes and fingers. Are most hotels open during the winter? Yeah. So the vast majority of hotels that are open in the winter in Alaska, even in Anchorage, can do an Aurora wake-up call. If you're up in Fairbanks, I would assume like every hotel in Fairbanks will do that. There's just so much to do and see in your home state, Valerie. It feels impossible to capture it all in one go. There's the wildlife, the native culture, the Aurora light show, and if you're lucky, maybe even a few moose tacos. So whether you're on a budget or want to focus on just one area, Alaska definitely seems like a place to visit more than once in a lifetime. You can feel pretty confident that in 10 or 15 years, Alaska is still going to be ready for you. And there'll be all kinds of new and interesting things because every year there's something different. Valerie Stimmick, thank you for joining us. Thank you, our listeners, for being with us. If you're planning a trip, be sure to connect with a AAA travel advisor. Check out AAA.com forward slash travel or visit your local branch. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. I'm Angie Orth. Thank you for traveling with AAA.